Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In episode 204, I interviewed veteran architect and globetrotter Stephen Ehrlich, founder and principal at EYRC, a Los Angeles-based architecture studio working under the tenet of multicultural modernism. Stephen and I talked about his formative years on the East Coast, his early career in Africa as a member of the Peace Corps, creativity, and the challenges and inspiration that come with running a small but mighty and well-respected practice. Listening to hear Stephen talk about what moves him. Thanks, Stephen, for uh, having us for the uh, for this interview, and thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Good to be here. So I want to jump right into the hard questions yep. and uh, talk a little bit about your childhood and what you were like as a kid. So, um, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in upstate New Jersey, in Radburn, New Jersey, which is a very interesting community. It was the first planned designed community in the United States, designed by Wright and Stein. And it had green belts and cul-de-sacs. And I grew up there and we also had a summer house in upstate New York. So that, that's where I grew up. And so what were you like as a kid? <laughs> what was a lot like, like as a kid? I, um, well, as it relates to architecture, I used to love to build forts and tree houses and Uh, I really I dig tunnels in the snow. I really liked to build things, and I realized that early on. And honestly, I knew I wanted to be an architect at a very early age. When I was 12 years old, my seventh grade science fair project was a solar home, which <laughs> won a New Jersey State Science Fair Award. That's part of how I was like as a kid. So do you know at what point, or do you remember at what point Um, you decided to become an architect or was there an event or something that well I think I knew that I really loved to build things I knew I knew that I was just so motivated and excited to be doing these tree houses and forts as a little kid and then maybe around 11 or 12 um, I was given a book about Frank Lloyd Wright and I think that solidified it that made me know for sure <laughs> that that was the path I would uh go on and be on and to this day many years later i'm still on that path and, and i know it's the right one for me so was architecture something that was appreciated or celebrated in your family well it's interesting um my father was an inventor and a mechanical engineer so he some of his clients were architects and they would sometimes discourage me from being an architect because i think they understood that it's not an easy profession but uh, nothing would dissuade me and uh, I would say my parents were very supportive. And so there was no consideration at any time for you to consider other careers? Not really, no. I was, I was given the freedom to choose my, my own way. So I want to jump forward a little bit in time sure. and talk about your time in Africa. Sure. How did you end up there? Okay, so in 1969, I graduated from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York with a degree, a bachelor's degree in architecture, a five-year program. That was the year in 1969 that the Vietnam War was raging and uh, there were no longer deferments for graduate school. 
and uh, my options had narrowed because I wanted to do service for my country, but I didn't want to support a war that I didn't believe in. And the Peace Corps was the perfect alternate, which was service for my country. And in, in the end, I was able to be the first architect placed by the Peace Corps to work in Marrakesh, Morocco, for the urban planning and architecture department of the Moroccan government in Marrakesh. And I did that for two years. And it was a fantastic experience because I not only learned two languages, both French and Arabic, uh, but I also learned about another culture and I got to appreciate that there are many ways of living and I marveled at how the indigenous builders in North Africa would come up with very creative, beautiful architecture that completely responded to the earth and the land where it was being built and that they lived in a very delicate balance and harmony with very little uh, outside intervention like air conditioning or anything like that. It was all done very naturally. And it was a truly important lesson. So you must have seen a lot of the um, typologies you see in Morocco, like the Riyads and the courtyard houses. Yes, and I lived, and by the way, I lived in courtyard houses in the Medina. So it wasn't like I was trying to live like a European or an American. I was living like a local person. Mm -hmm in, you know, embedded in the city. And it was very exciting. And after two years, I uh, embarked on a very big adventure. I traversed uh, very slowly. I took a whole year and I traversed across North Africa to Tunisia and then south into the Sahara and across the desert and uh, visited almost every country in West Africa. And um, really lived a very rough travel experience in that I Uh, had a backpack, I could sleep outside or I was invited into locals' houses. I never went to hotels or anything like that. It was, you know, more like rugged travel and very remote places. But again, constantly seeing as you go from desert architecture into the savanna and then into the rainforest, how each climate zone really developed an architecture and a culture mm -hmm. that was very specific and unique. And you could see this very very clearly. And um, it was great to make those connections that people were living, again, in harmony with the land and their culture would really be very much a function of the environment that had been, that had affected that culture over, uh, over centuries. So where did you go after Morocco? Well, across the Sahara into, the, into West Africa. And then, um, although I did come back to the U.S. for two years, I then went back and was a professor of architecture at Amadou Bello University in Zaria, Nigeria, in the north. And I did three more years of living in Africa. What was your experience in Nigeria? Well, it was amazing. It was a different culture than North Africa. It was northern Nigeria, so it was, it had a certain, it was the, the Sahal and the Savannah region. Um, I, interestingly enough, I was one of the uh, first professors to teach the students about how they should look to the roots of their architecture. And even though they would be designing brand new, modern, contemporary government centers, schools, libraries, whatever those programmatic buildings would need to be, mm -hmm. that they would still understand climate, environment, culture, and be responsive to that in, in a new way. And the students really responded very well to that. And, and I also took the opportunity to, to travel, you know, more locally and explore more and get more embedded in the culture. So this African experience, 
how would you say that has influenced you and what are the lessons you've learned from it? Well, uh, you know, I coined a phrase called multicultural modernism. That's the work that we do here now and it emerged out of this six year experience. I would say that it's how, how can an architecture be global and local simultaneously? How can it respond to the environment and the climate? How can it be sustainable and yet be fundamentally sustainable in a very natural way, as well as embracing new technologies and also being sustainable, but not, mm -hmm. not trying to be sustainable by only applying something, but by understanding the fundamentals. And also to realize that architecture is a, uh, an art that serves people, enhance that. How do we put people in touch with each other? How do we put people in touch with the cities they live in or in maybe a very quiet, natural environment that they may live in? So each project is different, but um, I, I would say that I learned a lot from the wisdom of indigenous builders. And so you, you've touched on one aspect of this multicultural modernism being sustainability. Yep. What about uh, cultural sustainability and the preserving of culture? Well, you know, that's an interesting uh, question because culture is changing quickly. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think we have to be, we have to understand that, like the work environment is changing quickly, the educational environment, and in some ways even the living environment. Fundamentally, I think we still want to be, we still want to create works of architecture that connect people with each other, connect people with themselves in a way, maybe contemplative environments where mm -hmm. people can reflect and, uh, and also connect people with, with nature, with the environment, which LA offers great possibilities because, you know, we have a wonderful climate. Mm -hmm. And rather than living in a sealed, air-conditioned environment, I would much rather live in an environment where doors can and windows can open up and natural breezes come in and we're more in touch with yeah. and connected with the outside. And, and I think California is very much suited to that. Every time I come here, I'm amazed as both by the landscape and the weather and how... Yes. Are you pleasant. not from here? No. Oh, where do you live? Toronto. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So, you know, one of the... One of the so, apropos to that, uh, when I was living in Nigeria in my, at the end of my second year of teaching, I visited over the summer when we had summer break, uh, school break. I came to visit my sister in LA who lived in LA and works in the movie business. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the light bulb went on that, you know, I could, I guess I didn't really know LA and I really saw it. I felt it as a, the place I wanted to be. I, I knew that I could continue to experiment with indoor-outdoor architecture, courtyards. Uh, I had lived in six, for six years in courtyard houses in Africa, both North and West. And I was wanting to continue that exploration. And also I felt that it was a diverse city uh, that feels like a melting pot and kind of a crossroads of cultures and peoples from all over. And that, that also attracted me. So a year later, I just settled down here in LA and yeah. I, I visited Simon Rodia's Watts Towers and I got excited about seeing in some ways the artful yet funky side of LA, like South Alameda Boulevard with stacks of hubcaps three stories high. I mean, just different things that excited me. So is it fair to say that the, the potential of what could be in LA is what attracted you? Absolutely. That's what I felt. I felt that I felt the potentiality of 
coming to LA. And uh, and now I've been here since 1977. So over 40 years. Wow. That's a long time. And um, it's definitely my city. Yeah. So after 40 years, does that still ring true? Absolutely. Completely. Yep. Yeah, we're, I like to say we look out to the Pacific century. <laughs> yeah. So um, going back to traveling, but on the, not specifically about your African experience, but in general, do you have a favorite place to travel to? The next one. The next place is my favorite. <laughs> I, I want to continue to travel. Um, I mean, I have actually been back to Morocco uh, a few times since returning from my big sojourn. So I have to say Morocco does have a special place. I am interested in so many different places and I like, I kind of like somewhat adventurous travel, let's say. So can you describe that too? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the idea of going to countries where, and, and by the way, it could be even a European country. My wife and I are going to Europe to Italy actually for two weeks coming up fairly soon and we're going to be in Sicily for a week and then we're going to go to Rome and meet three of our kids there which I'm excited about and then we're going to end up at the Venice Biennale uh, the, which is the opening of the architecture Biennale yeah. so that's going to be really exciting so I'm totally looking forward to that but um, you know I, I know I will be heavily influenced and excited about the architecture I've been there before but I, I can't wait Yeah, well, Italy is one of those places that you can't really ever go, grow tired of. Right? right. And and I'm looking, and I'm always interested in the contemporary architecture as well as the historic. It, mm -hmm. it excites me. I know in a few years I'll be going to Southeast Asia, and my wife and I are very compatible, with, you know, adventurous travelers, so we enjoy it. So speaking of architecture, um, what would be your biggest influences in the field of architecture. Well, I, I just told you one of the biggest ones, which is really the influence of vernacular builders throughout the world. <laughs> I mean, I started off in school really being mesmerized and studying deeply the work of Le Corbusier, Louis Kahn, Mies van der Rohe, Frank Lloyd Wright. These were my heroes, if you will, as a student. And now in LA, I would say I was definitely influenced by the early California modernists like Richard Neutra, perhaps more so even would be Rudolf Schindler, who I've had a very close experience. Actually, I've had an experience with both of those architects, having remodeled some of their houses and even owning a couple of them. And then, you know, there's the late, you know, the later year modernists uh, influenced by Ray Cappy, by Raphael Soriano, I mean, Charles and Ray Ames. I mean, the list is long. And of course, the explosive, pure, uh, intuitive architecture of Frank Gehry would, would be also, mm -hmm. you know, somewhat in, of an influence, of course. And so what would be your influences outside of architecture? Good question. Um, nature, looking at nature, looking at just getting excited by the landscape. We just finished a house in Palm Springs, nestled up in the rocks. In fact, we were just there <laughs> photographing it, yeah. Megan and I and the photographer. And, you know, really looking at the landscape and this very barren, beautiful, mesmerizing place and how the, you know, the architecture really grows out of it and uh, becomes part of it. So I'd say that the landscape really truly affected 
Yeah, beautiful house. So, you know, I would say landscape greatly affects the landscape. That's a great source of inspiration, especially in California. I was just, uh, I did a motorcycle trip a couple days ago up the coast and going east down to the Central Valley and coming back through Los Padres National Forest. Nice. And in 550 miles of riding the variety of landscapes is it's unbelievable right yeah like anything i've ever seen before yeah california is so rich in varied landscapes i mean it's amazing we have done you know probably most of our projects are la centric but Mm -hmm. we've done work in the desert the desert including palm springs a house there but also we've done two university buildings in phoenix arizona and a United States federal courthouse in Yuma, Arizona. So these are desert climates. Um, and we're now doing more work in Northern California, mm-hmm. including Marin County and Silicon Valley. And those have their own special landscape that's influencing the architecture as well. Mm-hmm. So go, going back to the idea of influences, have you had, or do you have any mentors? Well, the people, I would say that the people I mentioned earlier would be mentors, some okay. some living and many who are no longer with us. And so what would you get out of such relationships? Well, I, I mean, for example, one of my friends uh, and master architects is Ray Cappy, who now is 90 years old. Um, and we do have a relationship. And I, I think I just, we have very interesting discussions and conversations, and we have had them for many years. We've been friends for 25 years. You know, we would talk about the big picture of architecture, but we would also just talk about, you know, the realities of architecture and some of those important factors. What does it take to be a successful and, you know, practicing architect mm-hmm. that people want to continue to hire? Because yeah. without people who hire us, we can no longer do our work. And, and speaking of, that's a perfect segue for my next question, speaking of um, being successful in one's career, what would you say is the biggest risk you've ever taken? Oh, I've taken a lot of risks. Well, launching out on my own was a big risk. That took place in 1979. I passed my licensing exam and uh, I had designed a house for someone I knew, a small house up in the mountains of Santa Cruz. And I had been working for an architect in Malibu, and I really wanted to launch on my own, but didn't really have any other work. So I told my client, if he wanted me to, I'll build the house for him. And he said, great. So I moved a trailer up to this mountaintop ridge in a remote area, and um, I became the construction manager who hired all the subcontractors and helped out doing some of the construction and did that for a year. So that was a big risk. So looking back at it, Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. but how crazy would you say that idea was at the time? I don't think it was crazy. It just was following the instinct of the will to build and uh, wanting to... Uh, and by the way, I might add that um, having worked on construction sites gives me an appreciation for uh, the craftsmen and the workers that put buildings together. And actually, one of the things that I integrate into projects, in particular houses, is that I like to uh, see the hand of the craftsman. And so instead of painted drywall, I prefer hand-troweled plaster with wax over it. And you actually see the process of the craftsman working rather than covering it up. 
So it's paying homage to um, maybe a more traditional way of building? Uh, traditional being very old and traditional, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe, you know, like hundreds of years ago. And uh, I do like also to see materials that will actually weather over time, like take a piece of steel and let it rust mm -hmm. and just to watch it go from gray to that beautiful rusted red, deep, rich, orange, red color, mm -hmm. and to see it go through transformations. Mm -hmm. I, I actually enjoy that quite a bit. And, and I think from my perspective, that's actually a quality that we don't see enough in architecture. Um, a lot of the buildings that come out, some of which are great buildings, don't necessarily age really well because they look really good when they come out of the ground, but then right. the aging process or the kind of the way it's going to look through its life cycle is not necessarily well thought about. What's your opinion on that? Listen, uh, we've done buildings where there's a high quantity of glass as well. So one could also have a very machined aesthetic and uh, I wouldn't judge that as being bad categorically either. Okay. So following up on the idea of taking risks, can you speak to maybe some of the failures you've had to deal with throughout your career and what you've learned from them? <laughs> well, You know, I don't know if I would call them failures as much as setbacks. And every architectural practitioner has to, I believe, have the utmost enthusiasm, but simultaneously be ready to take a direct hit at any time. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, I'll give you maybe the biggest example uh, for us. Uh, every architect has a graveyard of projects that never get built. And those are the saddest things because you've gone through this process of creating something that didn't mm -hmm. come to fruition. And um, we had won a major design competition for the parliament building in Abu Dhabi, mm -hmm. the parliament building for the United Arab Emirates. It was a big international competition where 15 architects from around the world were invited. It got down to the final four, which included Norman Foster, mm -hmm. Zaha Hadid, and Masilimo Fuxas and ourselves. And we were selected as the winner. And it was very important cultural building, very large building. We won the competition maybe eight years ago and it, it doesn't seem like it's going forward. So that's sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like seeing one of your I guess babies not grow up. Right? Exactly. But um, you have to uh, be willing to, you know, put that behind you and keep looking forward. So of those setbacks, the parliament building being one of them, maybe other, a few others. Sure. What would be the most important lessons you've gotten from those? What are the lessons from the setbacks? Well, one lesson is that you, that we developed some really good ideas Uh, and we do, by the way, design competitions where we don't always win. So what can you say? It's a great disappointment. But one did develop ideas that can hopefully influence maybe other projects. But you have to emotionally be willing to go beyond them and look forward. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I want to switch to a slightly more upbeat topic. No. Okay. Um, yeah, really. And that isn't the most. Setbacks are not the most upbeat, I agree. No, but I, I think they're important to talk about because um, even though I employ the term failure like you, I think uh, there's always a lesson to be learned from it. Correct. And as long as the lesson is learned, it's never really a failure. It's, uh, it's a setback. It's an expensive lesson or something. Mm -hmm. But um, right. because everybody messes up 
from time to time. Absolutely. So whether it's our own doing or not, it's, it's mm -hmm. irrelevant. So I think it, it's always important to kind of acknowledge what those are and how we move from work to forward. Right, and you need the you need the emotional and intellectual um, backbone to move on from those setbacks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how important is creativity for you? Well, creativity is everything, really, isn't it? Being creative is what architects do. And yet we do it within the context of serving the people that our buildings are for. So it's a very special process. It's something I totally believe in. And I think that what's exciting is that you can be creative on a very broad, large scale. Like, how does a building fit into a city and celebrate the life of the city? Or it could even be some little detail, like what has a certain material turn the corner? Or what is the selection of that material? So the range and scale is quite special. And so do you have um, outlets outside of work that allows, allow you to be creative as well? Or you pour your entire um, being into your work? Well, first of all, <laughs> I mean, I have three grown daughters and a grandson, and that's obviously a very big <laughs> creative mm -hmm. position to be in. And I'm very happy about that, of course. Uh, but, you know, I, when I travel, I sometimes take do little drawings or watercolors uh, during travel. But no, I, I think fundamentally uh, my creativity is focused largely on architecture. So one of the previous guests on the show um, said something that I, I keep thinking about to this day. He said, the act of living is inherently creative. Yeah, I wouldn't argue that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, again, I'm going to just go back to travel for a moment because With travel, at least for me, I become inspired. I'm inspired by a new place. Mm -hmm. And that engagement with that new place and being influenced by it is a form of creativity that will somehow in some perhaps intuitive way manifest itself for future projects. And, you know, at this point also, our practice has really You know, it started off with just me alone out of a pickup truck uh, moving into a garage and then above the garage. And then it's evolved over 40 years. And now we're 35 people and I've got three partners and, and, and incredibly talented staff of young, talented people. So it's a lot of the creativity is also now how does this collective of talent work together and how do we interact, how do we inspire each other, how do we communicate, all those things are very important. So what is your secret sauce to keep that culture that drove you to start the business alive in a firm of well, 30 plus people? Yeah, well, building, first of all, building an atelier or a architectural practice is a creative endeavor, it really is, because you need the right mix of people and the right mix of talent, and that could be differences in perspectives, differences in age, differences in ideology, architectural ideology. Mm -hmm. So uh, like a marriage, the, the secret is communication and compromise. And I think that in some sense, being open to listen to ideas, being able to challenge our younger practitioners is part of that creativity. So an exchange. Exchange of ideas and exchange of thinking. And so much of larger scale architecture is complicated building projects that have to come together 
and be understood in many, many complicated ways. Mm -hmm. And that helps inform the, the solution. So when you first answer the question on creativity, you briefly mentioned the creative process. Can you speak to that process and what it's like? Well, there's certainly a creative process and sometimes the creative process could be, you know, sketching in a sketchbook with fundamental ideas. Sometimes it's working hand in hand with a young architect who's developing a scheme on the computer and being able to, we have so many fantastic now high technology tools to help us understand our designs. Um, it could even be conversations and challenge, you know, groups of us challenging each other verbally about the ideology and where we're going on, on a project. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts. So is there a lot of debates going on? There are debates, there are ideas put on the table. Uh, we like to challenge each other. That's a good thing. Is there something that's particularly annoying to you when it comes to being creative or constantly having this need to be creative because that's what you do for a living? Right. Um, things that block you or frustrate you and how do you deal with them? Listen, there are many aspects that annoying is maybe a kind word, but you know, there's been a lot of layers of bureaucracy that have entered into being able to build a building, in, in, often in you know, urban settings. And sometimes there needs to be community engagement and you can go through you know, long processes of getting buy-in. Mm -hmm. um, but that is, I, I, I accept that and we accept that as part of the process and we, and we go through it. And honestly, that dialogue can make a building or a project a better one. So I'm not denigrating it, but it could add quite, a, it could add years to a project. And bigger, complicated projects can take 10 years easily. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's just, that's the way it is. <laughs> so you're talking about that dialogue with the users or the community, right? Well, the users are one thing. Achieving the right building for the users is often quite doable and a very fun process. Mm -hmm. But if you're building a public building within an urban dense environment in LA and you have to go through the public process of presenting it, you're never going to get 100% approval mm -hmm. because people are always going to say, well, it'll add to traffic and it'll add to pollution. And these are things that are beyond what one building will do, but yeah. you become a target. So we just have to deal with that mm -hmm. and try yeah, to be patient and communicative. You become the catalyst for those objections that are not necessarily Correct. directed at you, but you're kind of like... Yeah, you, yeah. Become, a, you, yeah, yeah. you become a juicy target, yes. So... Aside from everything we already talked about, like creativity and personal inspiration, is there uh, things that you've uncovered as being conducive to doing great architecture as part of your design process or maybe things that separate what your firm does from other architects? I, I think we're responsive. I just think we're responsive to the big picture. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, I have, but I'll say it again. I, I think we are, we listen to people and place and we're not creating an architecture that is about us. It's not about look at me or here it is or here we are. It's really about a sensitive, beautiful, functional <laughs> reaction to 
the site and to the people that the building serves. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. What would be the accomplishments, either professional or personal, that you're the most proud of? Well, I talked about my kids. That's very high up on the list. Happily married. That's also high up on the list. Uh, very proud of the partnership that that is in place at the firm. Mm -hmm. And I'm proud of the projects that we've built. I really am. I mean, I'm really proud of them. And, and in 2015, we were recognized by the American Institute of Architects with the Firm Award, which recognizes a distinguished body of work. And that's nationwide. Right? And it was the Nationwide Firm Award, yes. And that's probably, of all the awards, and we've won many design awards, that's maybe the one I'm most proud of because it rewards the collective, mm -hmm. not just a singular building. That makes a lot of and sense. It, rewards not only the collective of buildings, it rewards the collective of the people working here to create mm -hmm. those buildings. Mm -hmm. so, so it was really the whole firm that won the award. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So is there um, a dream project that you haven't built yet? <laughs> a parliament building would be one of the dreams. Um, I'm now actually very interested in social housing. Mm -hmm. You know, I would love to be involved in projects and we're actually working on one on a very interesting project. It's a competition. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we win it. That would be for low-cost housing. I think that's a very interesting project. I mean, in the past, I would have told you a museum. I mean, I would, of course, enjoy designing a museum, mm -hmm. but um, I'm, I'm keenly aware of social issues and any projects that can serve a larger community is of interest. And so low-cost housing is not the most glamorous type of architecture. So what attracts you to that? Well, the need really attracts me. The need uh, that the city and the government has to put resources into the problem, the problem of homelessness. I mean, how do we deal with that? You know, I'm saying that not only as an architect, but as a concerned citizen. It's a big, a big issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously, it won't be resolved by one building. It has to be really looked at as a whole societal issue. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to do a little um, probably unusual exercises, one of the last couple of questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I call it a deathbed exercise, where if you picture yourself, whatever that is, yeah. on your deathbed, okay. what would be the legacy you would like to leave? I think the body of work will, will speak for itself. Uh, I'm very happy that My archives have been invited to be in the University of California, Santa Barbara Museum, like a museum, mm -hmm. um, where Rudolf Schindler's archives are also stored. So that's, that's a great honor. But that's not the legacy. I think the legacy is two things. I think it's the projects that have come before and hopefully the happiness that they bring to people and the projects that will come. Okay, great answer. So... Last question, stones or beetles? <laughs> I love it. That's a tough one. Well, I'm going to tell you a little story. So when I was in the third year of architecture school, which would have been 1966, and I was designing a project, and my professor came over to me and said, design like the Rolling Stones and less like the Beatles. <laughs> But frankly, it's a tough call. The Beatles were incredibly creative. And mm -hmm. the stones were just so rhythmic and influenced by the blues. So as, as someone who likes to have their cake and eat it too, I'm going to take both of them. <laughs> well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Arno, for your time. I enjoyed it. 
again, Arno here. If you liked this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio, edited by Ryan Akhtari, with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Revelator underscore TO, or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.